afternoon folks or good evening for those that are on the eastern coast i am your host tonight the eskimo libertarian i am not spike cohen um i'm literally not spike cohen um in fact spike cohen uh is actually busy at uh he's in studio with kennedy on fox business tonight so even though i'm not spike cohen this might be what spike cohen would look like if he had a lot more botox uh, maybe some hair extensions I don't know. <laughs> but anyways, so I will be your host tonight. Um, Spike will be conducting the actual interview. So I am playing Vanna White by pressing all the buttons and making things go live. And I will be live in the comments. So uh, you can interact with me there. But the actual interview will be done by Spike Cohen. So moving right along. If you guys are just joining us, make sure you like, comment, and share this video. Make sure you like other people's comments. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you guys ring that bell so that your phone blows up every time Muddied Waters Media goes live. So again, like, comment, and share. Make sure you like each other's comments. And how about this? The comment with the most likes, I'll read after this out loud after the interview. So get to liking each other's comments, make some silly comments, tag your friends, and uh, share to libertarian uh, Facebook groups and stuff like that. Alrighty. But before we get started with the interview, let's go ahead and pay some bills. So first up, 
the Waffle House Caucus. That's right, folks, the Waffle House Caucus. It is the fastest growing waffle-related caucus in the world and is the second largest caucus in the Libertarian Party. So the Waffle House Caucus, look them up on Facebook and join them. And uh, yeah, Waffle House Caucus. Thomas Queter. Thomas Queter is running for state Senate in the 52nd District in New York. He runs better than the government. Get it? Because he is he's in a wheelchair. And folks, he pays us to say that. So Thomas Queter is an excellent friend. He's got a great sense of humor. And he brings to light a lot of issues that have to do with ableism and stuff like that that come from the government. So go ahead and check out TomFor52.com for his platform and how to support him. That is TomFor52.com. Thomas Queter, I run better than Albany. The Royal Green. This book series is written by Jack Casey. And I will be honest, I have not read this series. And I don't know if anyone with Muddied Waters has actually read this series. Yeah, I don't know if anyone will, but <laughs> he does sponsor us, so we will talk about him. The Royal Green series. Get this beautifully illustrated trilogy from the royalgreen.com. Uh, the inside is not a picture book, just the outside. It's beautifully illustrated on the outside, not on the inside. So if you need a picture book, this is not the one for you. <laughs> These are actually rather large books. <laughs> Finally. Whoop, a governor. He is the key to Pennsylvania's success. So go check out Joe Solosky, folks. Alrighty, and today's guest is, well, I'm going to let Spike Cohen introduce him, actually. So without further ado, Spike Cohen, folks. All right, cool. Um, I, will, uh, I will get started right now. Folks, my guest tonight is an economist who has spent over 20 years as a trader and analyst at a number of securities firms and hedge funds in New York. His research focuses on financial markets, cryptocurrencies, monetary policy, the economics of gaming, and problems in economic measurement. He uh, has been featured or quoted in the uh, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Reuters, CNBC, NPR, Reason Magazine, numerous other media outlets and publications. Uh, he is currently an economist and author with the American Institute for Economic Research, one of my favorite groups out there. Uh, he also has a series of COVID books, coronavirus books, available right now on Amazon. The most recent one being... I even put it up here. It is the most recent one being coronavirus and new hope. So he's also an eternal optimist. And we're going to talk about that. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show, Mr. And soon to be Dr. Peter C. Earl. Pete, thanks so much for being on the show, man. One hopes we, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, but thanks for having me. Is that the new hope that you become a doctor in the process? You know, I mean, uh, I'm finishing a dissertation now and uh, starting to talk very, very loosely about defense states. But I mean, between uh, different uh, lockdowns in different countries and uh, trying to get the dissertation done and work and family issues, you know, these things can be uh, somewhat squishy. They're kind of hard, yes. hard to nail down. Wait, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The new hope is coming. Listen, right. I am very excited <laughs> to have you on because we have talked a lot about macroeconomics uh, on this show. 
but uh, we're going to get a chance to talk about how it specifically is affecting us when it comes to what's happening with the supply chain and the economy right now. And we've talked briefly about that with other people on the show, but I'm really, I've been, ever since I found out that you were booked for the show, I've been very excited to, uh, to really nail that down with someone specifically that. So thank you again for being on, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So let's get into it. Um, well, first of all, before we get started with that, I always like to ask my guests what got them where they where, where they are right now. Um, and you can start as early as you, as you want. You know, I was born at a young age. Um, but uh, what got you into economics? Was there like this aha moment where you realized this is what you wanted to be involved in? Obviously, background in, in trading and, and finances. Uh, or was there sort of a gradual evolution over time? Did you just go where the money was or, you know, what, what, tell us the, the Peter C. Earl Genesis story. Yeah. I mean, I didn't get bit by a radioactive spider or anything. I, uh, I, I, when I, uh, got out of college, I went to work in the financial markets. Well, first of all, as an undergrad, I did take one economics course and I absolutely hated it. Uh, I, I couldn't understand why I needed to know this stuff. It all seems so arcane and, uh, at the time, it seemed perfectly useless. Uh, so I didn't realize that when I went to work in the financial markets, and then uh, I was a, a kind of an early crypto guy in 2011 or so, when I actually started a business at one point, um, I didn't realize until maybe the mid, maybe about 2014 or 2015, that actually the thread of continuity between so much of what I was doing and so much of what interested me was actually economics. And I liken the change I made from finance to economics as moving from the microscope to the telescope. So mm. much broader sort of view, um, a look at uh, processes which occur at a very higher level, although of course microeconomics is kind of finance anyway, in some ways, but uh, yeah. So so from there, uh, I, I, uh, I, I was doing my own thing and I went to the, uh, or rather I came to the Sound Money uh, Project's uh, annual meeting at AIR in 2018 and uh, for, uh, for the cut of my jib and perhaps for my sins, uh, they hired me. Well, you've done great work. In fact, the most of what we're going to be talking about is featured on the two of the more recent articles you've done uh, with AIER. And um, it, it, this was actually, it was your article from October 2nd that actually uh, sparked us reaching out uh, to you to have you on the show because we're like, yes, this is who we were looking for. We were looking for someone that had a, a broad grasp of this and was ready to, to delve down with a, with a Jew in his guest room for an hour. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, now, you have these books uh, that came out. It's a series. The most recent one is Coronavirus and New Hope. I think it started with coronavirus and uh, uh, economic crisis, right? And then there's been a yeah. few since then. Yeah, there was uh, coronavirus and economic crisis, mm -hmm. then coronavirus and economic recovery. Uh, then there was coronavirus and disease modeling, coronavirus and uh, human rights, coronavirus and new hope, and maybe, who knows, coronavirus strikes back, coronavirus floods <laughs> again. <laughs> coronavirus attack of the variants, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, no, that's good. No, it's I, I like that, that you're building a... Um, uh, a parallel Star Wars fanfic universe um, <laughs> based on what we're actually experiencing right now. So tell us a little bit about that series. What, you know, what you're, are, are you basically chronicling how kind of taking a, a step back and making a kind of dispassionate look of how COVID has affected these different things, or is it just sort of a timeline? What, what, what are you trying to accomplish with the series? There's, yeah, there's both. I mean, uh, so there, there are 
most of the books are the the intro and the and the conclusion are written by me and i also write about half anywhere from half to three quarters of the articles but i also have articles that were written by other people at or in association with air and uh, the first two uh, uh crisis and recovery actually cover uh, what was happening during the lockdowns and then what was happening as things were opening back up. The next three, uh, disease modeling, uh, human rights, and uh, New Hope. New Hope also sort of covers what's happening in the spring of 2021, winter, late winter and spring of 2021. But but I would say that uh, books three and four, which are um, both uh, uh, you know, disease modeling and and, and uh, human rights are more on those topics. Um, the way that uh, quantitative models, I mean, many of the same criticisms which are made about econometrics you could make about epidemiology. Um, and th that's what uh, disease modeling has to do with. I, I was really taken aback when some years ago, long before the coronavirus uh, outbreak, before the pandemic, um, there were scientists saying that they could learn about uh, how diseases spread and what people are likely to do from an event that occurred in uh, World of Warcraft uh, with the, uh, I believe it was called the corrupted blood spell, where the way people uh, responded was, you know, some hid and some were sort of griefers and they spread the disease on purpose. And I was really, really disturbed me to think that uh, beyond making interesting parallels between what happened in the game in the real world, um, it would actually try to base um, real life uh, uh, policy, or I mean, right. I hope not policy, but on, on games. So. Um, that's all in the uh, book on, uh, on disease modeling. And then human rights really started with an, ar an article I wrote, which basically, in which basically I assert that the UN um, has basically proven that it has no teeth and it should probably be abandoned because right. uh, with, with something like, you know, 1.5 or 2 billion people under lockdown at one point, uh, which in the U.S. is bad enough in countries which are uh, already uh, subsisting uh, on very low levels of, uh, of, 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 of food and that sort of thing, very low standards of living, um, it's devastating. And that there would be starvation and the, exactly. the long-term effects would be devastating. So that's th those two books are more about what was happening overall than at a specific time. Yeah, in fact, I I'm glad you brought that up because this is something I said more than a few times, even when the lockdowns were being threatened. It, you know, this was like, I guess maybe uh, late February, early March of last yep. year, where I was saying, yep. I was still running for the nomination at that point. And I'm saying, folks, what is this going to do to people who already are relying on almost entirely from a combination of food aid from wealthier countries and uh, and tra and either you know tourism, trade, uh, you know whatever, doing business with wealthier countries? What happens when you shut the economy down temporarily, uh, temporarily being for however many months, and you know red light, green light, turning it back on and off like that's how that works? But then also. Yeah probably cutting off the aid because they're going to say, well, we can't, you know, we don't know the safety conditions. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, we didn't know what this virus looked like back then, but I thought it was safe to assume that if you were young and healthy, that the odds were, uh, you know, unless this was some kind of weird, uh, you know, uh, sci-fi flick where only the young and healthy are affected, typically the people that are in these countries tend to be younger, tend to not necessarily be healthier in a, in a broader sense, but they tend to be, uh, they don't have obesity issues. They, these are the people who are the least likely to be affected by the virus itself. And it seems like we're just throwing away billions of people, uh, or at least hundreds of millions of people who rely entirely on having other wealthier countries 
you know, doing business with them and, and in some cases helping them, providing them with things, what happens to them. And the fact that the initial response I got from people, including those who consider themselves, you know, bleeding heart types was, well, we're just going to have to figure it out was it made me realize like, oh, you don't actually like you don't really care about them like that. That, is, that wasn't the concern you said that it was. So I'm glad you actually brought that up. So, so I mean, it, it starts really starts in two ways, right? It starts with either stupidity or criminal disregard for human welfare. Okay, so we had with the arrival of the virus came these shutdowns, the lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, all this sort of thing, mostly in, in in March and April. And that's really where the story begins. Americans and people around the world were basically told, you can have an economy or you can have public health, but not both, which right. is which is by far the falsest dichotomy since you're either with us or against us. And mm. as we start this conversation, I want to say this two, two times because it's something that I think is one of the most pernicious um, myths to come out of this and one that I find a need to repeat every day. Governments, not a virus, caused what we're seeing today. I'll say it a second time. State policy, not SARS-CoV-2, COV-2, caused what we're seeing today period, underscore, boldface, all of it. No, I'm glad I'm glad you're saying that. I've, I've had people tell me and we're going to talk about this. You know, well, the reason uh, that the the shipping crisis is happening is because of all the people that died of COVID. And I said, that's not that's I, the, the fact that you think that it, you're definitely in that realm of people who in the opinion poll thought that 50 percent of people who get COVID die in the hospital or what? like, it, you know, you no. certainly see this as something complete. This is an economic issue that was caused by bad government policy. And obviously we're going to delve into that. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so um, let's talk about before let's define the problem, you know, getting into economics, you got to define the issue first and, and start measuring from there. So sure. what exactly is happening? Let's talk about the symptoms of what are taking place right now with the economy. What would you say, you know, uh, you know, we're looking at, you know, empty cargo containers that are, are, are waiting out. They're not, they're not even clogging ports They're waiting outside of ports. They're not even able to get into the ports. Yep. Uh, you have ships sure. waiting to dock. Truckers are sitting for hours or days waiting to pick up the cargo on the other end. Um, so there's obviously a couple of bottlenecks happening there. Uh, there's this, I love to watch the corporate media work with uh, government. You know, the wall, uh, was it Wall Street Journal or Forbes that put out something saying, don't be upset, just lower your expectations. And it was just like, wow, okay, thanks, Jeff. Be it was Washington Post. Cause it was like, hey, thanks, Jeff Bezos, who just got a $10 billion no-bid yeah, contract yeah. on something they didn't yeah. even do. I'll lower my expectations about what I can have for the holiday season. What are the, what are you, you know, what are you seeing beyond this that are the major issues? Before we get into the causes, what are the yeah. major things that are happening right now? So, I mean, first of all, how could you, how could anybody who doesn't play with spaceships not have lower expectations than Jeff Bezos. But anyway, uh, that's, that's <laughs> and by the way, I'm in huge favor of private space travel. I'm just saying, oh, absolutely. That's a weird problem. He, he would be better off being quiet. But there's a view, and I, I, I don't want to jump. I'm going to take one step back, if you don't mind. Sure. There's a view that, and it's among public officials, that economies are like lamps, and you can shut them off and turn them on at will with little or no consequences. Right. Yeah. So with lockdowns and then a huge, a huge monetary expansion campaign by the Fed mm. and then a number of fiscal stimulus measures, which all of that led to a massive surge in demand and plummeting supply. Right. 
So you have skyrocketing demand for people who are bored, they're lonely, they're worried, they suddenly have lots of disposable income, probably less expenses too, they're not going to work every day and all that. And at the same time, you have plummeting supply from shutdown factories, mines, mills, stores, and all that sort of thing. And yeah. what's interesting is that we saw the exact opposite of this at the same time. When OPEC flooded the market because they had a dispute in prices and nobody was traveling, we saw oil futures close down $32 a barrel. So on the other side of this, you have skyrocketing demand for goods and services, tons of money out there, and absolutely nothing, no production, no distribution coming out, all that sort of thing. That's yeah. the that's the root cause of all of this. Yeah, yeah. And so, the, and this, so basically, this is central planning. This is... Oh, absolutely. I remember watching over the last year with some weird combination of, of, of just misery and and very strong level of schadenfreude except the problem is it's a schadenfreude where it's like yeah i know i'm experiencing it too but you guys i you you know you're it was a huge i told you so we're we're it's a it's like this the stereotypical we're all in the dungeon you know about to be executed and i get to go ah who was right here you know like you know great i was right i wish i wasn't right but right sure. you know austrian uh, economists chicago school economists even some keynesians were saying this is going to lead to exactly what we're seeing right now you're yep. going to have yep. some things that are, have massive gluts you're going to have other things that are greatly restricted not just where it affects pricing but where it's just not available and then thanks yep. to uh in some cases price gouging laws there's just going to be no supply of it it's not they're going to say okay great at that price i can't supply it and so you're just going to have a shortage of that thing you're going to have all of these restrictions that made our supply chain so brittle to begin with are going to come to light because it's not going to be able to ramp up um so earlier this month you wrote before the public hysterics lockdowns and stay-at-home orders and even before the first offloading was delayed nominal rigidities had ossified u.s poor operations and made them particularly vulnerable to even the slightest kinks in supply chains can can you talk about the nominal rigidities and, and the, the policies that were causing that so we can dive into that? Sure. So so the term nominal rigidities refers to prices that, uh, whether because of collective bargaining or be, whether because of fixed wages or fixed sale prices or whatever, don't move. They don't respond to supply and, de to supply and demand or they don't re right. respond in, in, in the way that they might otherwise. The sophistication of the modern world, the modern commercial world is very easy to overlook. Uh, you know, the, the, this incomprehensible variety of goods from all around the world that are right at our fingertips within a day or two has become so reliable that we take them for granted. But when in fact, all along, it's been an extremely fragile and coordinated dance of sorts. So most, we'll go to the dock work, okay? Most, if not all dock work in the US is collectively bargained, right? When I was a kid in the New York City area, we called them stevedores, dock workers, right? Um, some of them earn more than doctors do. Now, I'm not saying they have skills. Uh, I'm not saying they don't have skills yeah. or that that's justified, but those prices are not made on the market. Those prices right. are made by collective bargaining agreements. For years, those unions have militated against upgrading to the type of equipment you would find on docks, such as in China, Denmark, and a number of other countries, which have you know, extremely sophisticated trade relationships and a lot of uh, sea travel, that sort of thing. That artificially lowers the headcount and increases the time it takes to do work. And guess what? This may surprise you, but they're paid hourly. So that's 
a, a huge source of, 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 of nominal rigidities, which uh, after a few, so, so there were exogenous and endogenous hits that the supply chain took. This right. is an endogenous one. Yeah. So this is, you know, it, it was interesting. Um, there was an, uh, an article that came out that talked about, uh, in fact, I think it was, was that your article? It was with AIER where it talked about the collective bargaining uh, that we're like one of the only developed countries on. In fact, it was AIER. Yeah. This might have been your article. Yeah. That, was it? Yeah. Okay. Where it talked about yeah. the fact that, uh, okay, so you've, I've already quoted you on this show multiple times. So congratulations. Um, and I actually ratioed Joe Biden on his own post by sharing your article and saying, why aren't you talking <laughs> about why we weren't 24-7 operating to begin with? So uh, That's why my phones are bugged. That's why, that's why you're now on a watch list. I, I, you're, right. you're, you're, you're welcome. Uh, but right. so, you know, we were the only, one of the only, if not the only, certainly the only of the largest developed countries that was operating on a, on a you know, a, 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 not a 24-7 schedule. It's like a five-day yeah. schedule, 18-5 schedule or something like that. And, yeah, I've uh, been told it's something like 5 a.m. to 9 p.m., something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, so which to them, you know, that sounds like a nightmare to a, to a union worker. But in in the in the developed world and in the new age economy, goods and services are supposed to be moving all the time, twenty four seven. Absolutely. Not yep. not during expanded bank hours. Um, and uh, and so you know that was an incredible thing. But that's only as you pointed out in your most recent article. That's so funny. That's right. your article. That as you pointed out in your most recent in in, in one of your more recent articles, that only makes up. Now, 10 percent's a lot, but that only makes up about 10 percent of the of the actual cause of the backlog. So right. what are what are some of in your mind the biggest causes of this backlog? So another thing is that the unions, uh, the dock workers unions have uh, have militated against using the most up to date equipment. Um, yep. So if you take a look at the port operations in places like, excuse me, uh, Rotterdam, um, Amsterdam, places like that, uh, yeah. you'll see really sophisticated equipment that's used. Uh, I've been told, but I haven't seen that there's actually, there, 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 there are laser guided systems which can stack and remove uh, containers from ships and they move very quickly and very efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have those in the US in many places, in most places, because the unions have, have, have basically uh, prevented them from being installed. And uh, also a lot of the work is still done by hand, which, uh, it, it, I mean, a few people, when they've heard this, they've said that simply can't be the case. But uh, when, uh, when 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 uh, the Biden administration went to the unions and said, "Hey, can you go from uh, you know, nine, 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. to 24/7?" as occurred in a few places, all they did was increased their working hours, but they didn't increase the efficiencies. They didn't improve the rate. You know, whether it's containers an hour or ships right. per day or whatever that are going to be offloaded. So. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, that's 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 really the, 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 at the crux of the issue. So this could end up leading to, you know, OK, great, we'll work this many more hours, but there's going to be a slowdown. There was a similar thing that happened in uh, France, and this was in I'm dating myself now. I want to say this was in like 2004 or 2005, where they were mm -hmm. having an issue with their rail workers. And uh, and that's all all unionized. 
Uh, in fact, those are, I think, actually public employee unions. And I'm trying to remember the exact details, but basically they made them work more hours. So they just slowed the, the speed of the trains down so that roughly it was it was the same amount. So it actually screwed over the, the, the passengers, the consumers of that product, because now sure. it was taking them longer to get to where they needed to go. Uh, so nothing was happening other than all that happened was that the, uh, the uh, union workers were now getting more hours of work and it was taking longer for people to get to work. So do you think it's possible that this could actually be that where it actually in one way slows things down because yes they've expanded the hours but there was no actual promise that there would be an increase in, out, in uh, output or productivity yeah yeah at the very least it doesn't help and it probably more likely it probably makes things at least a little if not much worse you know for decades americans have been told look for the union label by american and that unionization right. was good and right salutary and that we should we should be happy to spend more on u.s goods versus embracing global competition I mean, I think it's time for, it'll never happen. A politician will never do it, but I wish Americans could, could somehow say, listen, for years we bought your overpriced goods. We put up with the artificial hindrances um, that, that politicians erected to coddle you against competition. It's your turn now to give back. Act like adults who know the demand curve slowed down and, 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 and you know, it's, and, and, and embrace competition even temporarily. Even yeah. temporarily suspend the minimum wages, suspend the artificial uh, restraints on uh, on headcounts and all that sort of thing. I mean, again, yeah. fat chance of that happening, but that's what I think should be done. No, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I'm actually not against unions per se. I'm against what no, they've turned no, I mean, into. It's, I, to me, I'm not against unions. I mean, I think it's the right of association, all that. I wouldn't ban right. unions, but yeah. I would say, listen, you know, if, if you're going to require me or if you're going to, you're going to basically muscle the, the government to make me buy your goods, uh, your, your, your agreements have to be flexible too. And this is one of those times where we should invoke uh, some sort of a, uh, an emergency valve, which says, okay, guys, for the next six months, for next year, or until the backlog of ships is less than five you know, per day or whatever, uh, we're going to bring more people on. And yeah, you can call them scabs or whatever, but we're going to get this thing going again. Yeah, it's going to be one or the other. It's either you get to keep your closed shop stuff in place, but there's going to have to be some flexibility on your side. Or, hey, let's reexamine the idea of these closed shops. Um, right. A side note to that, and I don't know if you know much about this, but apparently either yesterday or the day before, Ron DeSantis uh, called for the ships to just come to Florida. He said, we've got the we've got the ports, we've got the the workers. Um, and he he said he was uh, or uh, it's been speculated that he's speaking with the people that have the docks there to talk about expanding it. I, I don't know much about shipping specifically when it comes to the, the logistics. So maybe you know this better than me. Is it possible? Obviously, longer term expanding a dock or something like that. That is a multi-month, multi-year process. But if everything remained as it is, is there a possibility that the center of shipping in the U.S. could ship, could shift to the East Coast between the Panama Canal and just the differences in rigidity and pricing and so forth? That you could end up seeing this sort of uh, uh, shift from you know California and the and the Western ports to Florida and the southeastern ports as a as a means of of getting goods uh, by ship into the U.S. or is that are there too many geographical things that would make that not really possible? I mean, I'll give you the economist answer. Uh, it's all about the cost. It's all about the prices. If yeah. they can make them at least competitive, I mean, it's 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 worth more to shipping companies to have goods moving than not. So right. what they're seeing right now is untenable. 
The question is whether this becomes, whether a move or a change to Florida is semi-permanent or permanent, and that all depends on the cost. Right now, I think many of these firms, uh, many of the big shipping firms and, and, and the firms that are sending goods through, through, through on, on uh, tankers uh, or rather cargo ships and that sort of thing, they want this stuff to get going. And I think uh, if they knew it was temporary, they might be inclined to eat some of the higher cost just to just to sort of smooth over things and keep their supplier relationships happy and and content but um it's, it's really if they can make the cost if florida can make the cost decisively lower and really sort of cut into uh these overhead costs that are so sticky uh and and and, and represent such rigidities in the cost structure yeah i could see that happening sure i mean it's happened with airlines yeah, it has definitely happened with the airlines. And you could, sure. you know, e even if it takes a few extra days to get here from, you know, instead of California, compare that to being stuck at sea for some of these boats have been there for like a month and a half. Like, so, you know, yep. you make that comparison. It's a no brainer, obviously. So right. Right. I, I was just curious of your thoughts on that, because I literally found out about that like yesterday evening. Um, yep. Right before we did our show last night, and uh, and I thought, well, okay, that maybe that that you know we may end up seeing where Florida becomes, uh, if not the shipping capital, at least takes quite a bit of the of the uh, of the the the, the juice share. from from California, yeah, the profit share, uh, the market share from California. Um, right. These are the problems with what happens when the ships get here and how they're being processed, and that's been right. a problem for a while. Mm -hmm. But we reached a crisis that didn't seem to be something that had been slowly happening over the course of several years. We suddenly had a crisis, or at least if it was building up, it wasn't over the last generation. This was a, a, an issue that happened in a relatively pretty short period of time. Sure. I am of the belief that the biggest cause for this massive influx and, and the problems would then the reason that we can't rise to adapt to it is because of all these things that are in place, all these policies. And we could even go further and talk about how California is not allowing any uh, um, truck made before 2013 to get on. I mean, there's, there's endless, endless policies we could talk about that are causing problems. Yep. But that's why we haven't been able to rise to the to the the, the demand that's been coming. This influx to me feels like this is what happens when you play red light, green light with the economy not just here, but around the planet with these lockdowns and stay at home orders and mandates and everything else. Um, also possibility that this is, uh, at least domestically, but possibly in other countries as well, uh, the result of vaccine mandates where people, you know, say, okay, fine, I won't take the vaccine. So you've got to find someone else to do my job. Am I off here or, is, or, or are those lockdowns and other policies what caused this massive influx and the problems related to it? Sure. So, there's, as I said before, there's exogenous and endogenous uh, uh, explanations for what's happening. I mean, right. certainly, certainly the, the the mandatory vaccinations and people who only a few weeks back, uh, maybe four or five weeks ago, six weeks ago, stopped receiving government aid, really sort of kept a part of the labor force at bay. But um, you know, there's other things too. For example, uh, we had there were three events I covered in one of the articles. There was the Ever Given getting stuck in the Suez. Um, and there were a couple of uh, uh, Chinese port closures. And what, what I think, because you can't be an expert in everything, uh, what I think a lot of people fail to, fail to understand is that one of these events where a giant ship gets stuck in the Suez for right. six days, it backs up 400, say, ships. All of these things are not additive. They're multiplicative, where one day delay becomes six, becomes 30, becomes when does it happen? 
and right. so that's 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 a big part of it is that these are these are i mean without getting too into this part these are extraordinarily nonlinear functions yeah. um they 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 the delays are almost like uh derivatives where one dollar equals three and then you lose yep. another dollar and it's 12 and then it goes like that so so that's really what's happening but everything from those delays to the nature of the shipping containers themselves right now are causing these delays i, I mean i don't think i put that in any articles i've spoken about what's happening with shipping containers. i don't believe so yeah i was going to say I've, uh, I've this is the first time I'm, I'm hearing of that i don't think that yeah. was in there yeah so of course there's a finite number of shipping containers in the world and they're made by only a few companies. And this company tries to make them at a rate that kind of replaces the ones that are too old. They last about 12 years. And they're, they're a miracle of, of the modern commercial world because you can take this one container, fill it with stuff. It can travel by truck to a ship, get offloaded onto a train, be, be taken to a barge. I mean, it, they're compatible with any number of, of forms of transportation. And what's happening is that as ships are being offloaded, uh, as cargo and containers are coming off of ships, it's going so slowly that they're filling up warehouses. And so many uh, of the shipping companies and many of the retailers are saying, don't take my stuff out of the shipping container because I don't know if I'll get another one back. So right. the shipping containers are starting to be used as makeshift warehouses or mini warehouses. And what's happening is that now there's a shortage of, of, of containers. And some of them also, by the way, are just floating in the middle of, uh, uh, or not in the middle, but off the coast of uh, California and, and other places. Meaning that they're not being filled up with the product to go somewhere else and yeah. Right, right. I mean, I mean, a container in, in, in hand is worth two on the board. So if you've got one, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the standard operating procedure right now is don't give it up until the stuff comes out and more stuff goes in. So you said there are only a few companies making this thing now you're correct that it is a, a a wonder of the modern age it's also a shaped piece of metal or series of pieces of metal yeah. why are there only a handful of companies making this i so i haven't looked deep i would look too too in depth on that issue um i i i wonder if it's a uh, a low margin business or uh, if there are mm. more likely uh some sort of uh obscure arcane transportation requirements that uh, only a few companies maybe have the uh concession for or something like that i don't actually know maybe okay. i mean yeah now i have something else to write about so thanks <laughs> coronavirus and shipping containers um <laughs> no but but here's the thing i i it's pro i would suspect that it's probably a combination of both that you've got some kind of weird uh you know policies centrally planned policies that are you know making it where only a handful there might even be some ip protections here um or eye protections i know it's like atm machine um but also um yeah i mean metal costs a fortune right now so it might be that one of these things would cost a million dollars to make right now so everyone's just making do with the ones that they have or something like that but that's also there's the a problem of a policy issue there's a particular route for which using a storage container used to cost i believe a thousand to fifteen hundred bucks and now the cost is over twenty five thousand dollars to give an idea of like uh, scarcity pricing in action. Now, when now that, actually, back I should when it... say that was a few weeks ago. It might have it might have uh, come down some, but uh, if it has, not much. So when it was, how long ago was it that it was a thousand to fifteen hundred bucks? Are we talking like? 
Uh, so let's see. Ever uh, the, the the Suez Canal blockage was I think April, March or April, yeah. and then you had a port close in July, and then another port closed in August. So I'm going to guess it was a thousand dollars as early as the start of this year, okay. early late late winter, early spring, something like that. Yeah, I hope if, that if, you're, if, went... if, if your watches are interested, I can look it up. I can do the research. Yeah, I'm. I'm interested in it. Interested, and by interested, I mean horrified. I hope that that twenty five thousand was like some weird spike in price that's coming down, and that that's not a slope that's happening. Because, geez, oh man. Well, it's a, it's, uh, a, it's, a, it's a specific it's a specific route, so it's okay. you know it might be an obscure route where there's not a lot of traffic anywhere. But either either way, oh, okay. for something to to magnif- for something to increase, you know, twenty something fold, uh, shows exactly how high demand is and how uh, how slow supply is coming to save it. Right. And that and this is the problem with pulling levers on the economy. Uh, I don't know if you watch Squid Game. I actually don't watch Squid Game, but I've seen the scenes of Squid Game where the doll is facing away and and says, uh, uh, I don't know if it's counting or it's no, it's playing a red song. Red light, green light. Yeah, red light, green light. But but when it turns around, uh, turns its head around, anyone that's moving at all gets killed. Yeah. So this would be like that game, except every time it turns around and people get killed, it goes, I can't believe that happened. How did that, who did that? And then turns around and does it again. That's right. what the government's been doing. They've been playing this game of, of Simon Says with the economy. And then when businesses fall apart, when entire sectors of the economy are in chaos, when you know people can't get needed goods and services, when the price yep. of basic uh, needs and necessities is reaching an point where an increasing number of Americans who even who are on food and other types of subsidies still can't afford what they need, at some point you have to admit that maybe having a small handful of people pretend that they can decide how everything's going to work without any price signaling involved at all, maybe that's not the best way to do it. Could not agree more. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, so, 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 far, so far, by the way, the Biden administration's brilliant idea is to find uh, – is to find, was to find ships that are floating off the coast of Southern uh, and Central California, $100 per container per day. Yes. That'll, that's, that'll their, that's the miracle uh, solution that they've come up with, which, by the way, a Panamax-class ship carries what's called their capacity. They call them TEU, 20-foot uh, equivalent units, which is one container. Yep. Yep. 13,000 TEUs comes to $1.3 million per day. So that's the fine that the that, that, that a Panamax uh, 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 class ship carrier is going to pay per ship, one point three million dollars per day, which I guarantee you most of these days are full. So that's that's the level of uh, of sort of creative policy making that the Biden administration has. They've finally taken the uh, anti-homeless policies of many metro areas and and applied it to the the boats waiting <laughs> to unload their products. And I, right. I mean, I can't imagine who's going to uh, have that price unloaded to them. Certainly wouldn't be the consumer. But where they've been saying, basically, we're going to stop homelessness by making it illegal for you to be homeless here. Basically, you know, we're going to we're yeah, going to yeah. except the fines are, you know, 100 bucks and, you know, a, a night in jail or a day in you know, a couple of days in jail and then get the hell out of whatever this town is. Um, now they've 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 successfully found a way to apply that. Uh, heartless and and uh, 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 counterintuitive policy to shipping containers. Amazing. Amazing. If anybody should be paying fines, it should be every public official who 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 thought that the uh, that the economy could 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 work like a lawnmower. And and I mean, 
that that should be the form of reparations. If there's reparations that should be made, it's from public officials who to 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 small business owners who are ruined by these ridiculous policies, which were, as I said before, based upon an absurd false dichotomy. It, That's it, my it, personal it, view. No, I listen. I, I agree with you. I the problem here, Pete, isn't that there's a a blo- a, a, a bottleneck of of getting the goods. They're just loitering. They're just being a bunch of lazy ne'er do well loiterers, oh, just yeah. loitering of out course. at sea. That's it's incredible. Right. No, no, they know that because they get paid by uh, you know by the minute and such. So I mean, right. the whole time this is going by the top, by the way, the whole time this is going on, the crews of those ships are 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 only outfitted for a certain amount of time. So the initial right. ones had to come into shore, buy more food, come back out. They had to put things behind. I mean. The, the, the knock-on effects of this are, are incredible. I mean, I, I've, I've already written about how lockdowns are accountable for 4,000% increases in Pokemon card prices and the collapse of prices of natural cheese. So, I mean, there will be books written about this, hopefully one by myself, in the coming years about everything that this silly decision to make people choose between public health and having an economy led to. Yeah, this is that false dichotomy. Do you want to be yep. sick? Or do you, or do you want to be healthy or do you want to be prosperous? Because we all know that poor people have the best health outcomes, right? Like it's definitely (laughs) proven that if you choose poverty over, uh, over health uh, or poverty over, over sickness, that, you know, that you end up being much healthier that way. Right. I mean, let's human beings, human beings used to live to be 150 years old. And then after the industrial revolution, now we only lived about 70 or 80. It's a shame. It's a, terrible. You would think we'd figure it out at this point, but right, you know right. who who has time to figure it out when you're being a lazy bum out there on your right. on your ship, refusing to unload your your good. I, that is in, it's just astounding. They're yeah, they're obstinate. They're difficult, is what it is. They're chur- it. being churlish, is what they're being. Um, <laughs> this is I, it, it is incredible to, to 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 see this. The thing is, we get frustrated and exasperated. I don't think that. I think maybe the politicians are stupid. I don't think that the actual people crafting policy are this stupid. And you can, we can, we can have this debate uh, or, or have your thoughts on this. You know, the, yeah. the, how much of this is, is uh, just stupidity and how much of this is malfeasance. Where do you yeah. think that falls yeah. in? How much of this is people who want to see this, these crises that they can then exploit for more control? And how much of it is just people that are idiots and really truly don't get that their centrally planned ideas are constantly failing and constantly making things worse? Yeah, so there's a a line that uh, von Mises uses in um, uh, um, in, uh, economic calculation, the socialist commonwealth. And I just, I would say that what we are seeing now is what Mises phrase groping in the dark looks like. This is what groping in the dark looks like. Okay, so as for as for uh, your question, uh, I'm allergic to conspiracy theories. However, however, there's there's nuance to this. Uh, I do believe that a lot of politicians are flatly stupid. I do believe that they are uh, sort of uh, automatons who are put into office, uh, and and really they do the work of lobbyists, and they're willing to say anything and do anything, and they have their interest groups and all that. But I also believe. You can know that a policy is likely to lead to certain outcomes and kind of hope they don't, but know also that you have every excuse available and that most people will give you a pass because they, 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 politicians and governments take recourse to lines of argument that as a social scientist, I can't take, right? 
Right. They can always lobby counterfactuals. Well, you know what? If we hadn't locked down, everybody would be dead. It would have yeah. been like Walking Dead or something. You know, nine nine tenths of the world would be dead. They can say, well, you know, we uh, we thought there might be problems, but you know how big business is and their profits. They got to get their profits and that sort of thing. So I I I do think I do think certainly that some things are done on purpose. I also think there's a, there's what I would call just incredibly depraved indifference where they do things and they say, if it works out great, if it doesn't, we've got every line in the book. So kind of somewhere between the, I like it. You found the centrist position between the, the third position between uh, being total idiots and being mendacious in that they're like, yeah, you know, this yeah. it's probably, there's a good chance this isn't going to work, but I have cover. And of course there's always the old right. tried and true. Well, this would have worked if the other party had worked with us. Or, or if you're in the minority position, you know, this would have worked if they had done it right. But if, you know, we had been in charge, yeah, we would have done right. the lockdowns right. Right. I mean, it surprises me sometimes. I've been a small L libertarian for a very, very long time. Yep. And I still try to try to analyze economic issues dispassionately. Mm -hmm. But what surprises me sometimes is uh, most libertarians rightly and appropriately, and based upon history, uh, uh, correctly identify the fact that governments really can't do anything right. They can't plan things all that, but yet they give them credit for erecting massive, complicated conspiracies, which right. involve hundreds of people and all sorts of interest groups. And I say, I'm not saying they're not evil enough to do that. I'm saying they're not designed to do that. He was calling me out there because I, so I tend to, I look at these things and I'm like, someone has to know this is doing this and they're they're good with leveraging it so i'm of the opinion that you've got this sort of massive group of idiots that are just doing terrible things and a handful of evil geniuses that are planted in various positions in there who are like sure. yeah i'm going to use this that's sort of my i guess you'd call it conspiracy theory but i i do think it's no, a no, that's, that's a little more nuanced than conspiracy theory i, I hear what you're saying yeah. yeah, I, I, but, but no, but you're right. I mean, it's like these idiots are ruining everything by design. It's like, well, it's one or the other. So no, I, I, I do get you there. The one thing I, I, I have not heard nearly enough about, and actually we already, even before you wrote this article, we wanted to talk about this. And then when you wrote the article, we all looked and said, this, this is why we got Peter C. Earl. He's already, he is pre-gaming <laughs> our episode to talk about this so your most re i think this is your most recent yeah this is like three days ago i believe this is your most recent article to fix the shipping crisis start by repealing the jones act we yep. talk about the jones act so yep. much on this show and i talk about the jones act so mm -hmm. much on my social media out in public appearances i will say the jones act and unless there's a puerto rican or hawaiian or alaskan there cheering yep uh everyone else like what the hell's the jones act and i'm like and yeah. or they'll go yeah the jones act that sucks i agree we should end the jones they don't know what the jones act is so but unless you're again puerto ricans people from guam people from hawaii people from alaska especially puerto Foreign ricans builders yeah yeah ship builders yeah, um they are they are acutely aware of what the jones act is now sure. for everyone on the show who somehow doesn't yet know what the jones act is even though I keep talking about it, talk to us a little bit about the what the Jones Act is first, yeah. and then we can dive into how it is a major contributor to what's happening right now. 
So the Jones Act uh, is a 1920 act. Uh, the Jones Act is actually part of the Maritime Shipping Act, I believe it's called. Yep. Yep. Um, and basically, it restricts foreign-owned vessels from loading cargo in one U.S. port and unloading it in another. So what it does is it doesn't restrict, you know, we should be clear, it doesn't restrict foreign ships from dropping off at a number of ports or picking up at a number. But what it does is it prevents them from acting like a bus, pick up here, drop off there, pick up there, and so on, uh, which is called uh, cabotage, or, or yes. some people say cabotage, right? Um, yep. Which is intercoastal trade. So in order to do that, a ship has to be American four times. It has to be manned by Americans, owned by an American company, built by an American company, and flying under the U.S. flag, which if it sounds restrictive, it sure is. Yeah, no, it's super, super restrictive. And we actually, so it's uh, it was in 1921, and I know that because we I did a post oh, okay. on the 100-year anniversary and why it needs to die. And just the sheer amount of suffering it's caused here and frankly around oh, no. the globe, but especially here. Um, you want to talk about opportunity costs. Yep. It is it is impossible to measure what we could have been. You know that meme where it shows this like futuristic world and it said it'll always be like some like obscure thing. This is what the world would have been like if we had listened to Ron Paul or if we, you know, whatever, yeah. like in it show. But that is potentially what the world could look like had the Jones Act not been passed, or at least certainly in the US. The US has the most what they call effective or usable shoreline that has access international access because we also have the sure. mississippi so we have the entire uh we have all of uh alaska although only a small part of alaska is actually what's considered effective or usable because of the arctic um mm -hmm. but then you have hawaii uh and you have um and you have all of the the west coast you have all of the east coast and and the gulf coast and then you have the mississippi sure. which goes from the top to bottom of the u.s uh at, at, in the great lakes with canada but then you have all the way down that goes all the way and goes out to the gulf so long story short the u.s should have the most vibrant robust and active maritime industry on earth with no peer and instead mm -hmm. because of the jones act the u.s has arguably no maritime industry is almost entirely just receiving goods and and maybe some shipping out there's no inter as you mentioned like intercoastal uh or intraco yep. i always confuse those two no trip we even have the panama canal there's everything sure. in place for the u.s to do the vast majority of its shipping by ship and instead because mm -hmm. of the jones act we are reliant on uh rail and road which leads to crumbling infrastructure because we overuse our rail and road for things that should be done by ship, which are, which is not only, uh, uh, which is only more environmentally friendly, but also cost less. It's still the most cost efficient thing. So long before any of this happened, it has been why we are not even wealthier and more prosperous and why the goods and services aren't even cheaper. It's a major reason for why uh, more and more uh, of us are buying things from other countries because it's actually cheaper to have it shipped from another country here on a foreign vessel than have it mm -hmm. brought here, brought from another state here by truck or by yep. rail. In, I, like, I... Ah, I could do this for 30 minutes. It's the dumbest, dumbest thing. So question, how is it specifically affecting what we're going through right now? 
So uh, what you were saying before about alternate, alternate timelines, uh, it reminds me of some years ago, someone told me that, that uh, if coal was oil, the US would be Saudi Arabia. Like uh, a similar thing to how we could have an incredible uh, 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 maritime business here with more competition yep. and that sort of yep. thing. So, you know, the longer you write, and I've been writing for some time now, the more you find that a lot of people look at words, but they don't actually read. And I say that because I got so many angry articles, uh, so many angry emails, rather, on my, on my, on my article saying that um, suspending the Jones Act wouldn't help. And that's, and I even said in the article, it's the first thing that should be done. People said, you need to do more than that. Like, I, I mean, I, I can only write the article. <laughs> you can't, can't wait. <laughs> yeah. So. How, first of all, how it, dare you think that the only problem we have right now is the Jones Act, writer yes. of 17,000 books about coronavirus? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Right. So, so if the idea that ships operating competitively on a more flexible basis, if the idea that that wouldn't be helpful or that that rather would be helpful isn't clear, we, I can give a few statistics. I've looked these up since then in some of my replies to emails. The cost of an American medium tanker to build one is three times the worldwide price for the same ship, three times as much. Okay. The cost of operating an American flag vessel is between two and three times as much as the identical ship flying under a Liberian or any other flag. Okay. Most people don't really care about that. So here's something that hits you and I to ship crude oil from the Gulf coast to New York is three times the cost to ship from the Gulf Coast to Eastern Canada, which is further away. Yep. Okay. That's $5 more per barrel or 15 cents, up to 15 cents per gallon of gasoline. Who pays that? You, me, everyone else. It's protectionism of the rankest form. And the fact that little old me wrote an article, and I actually got people sending me articles from these maritime and shipping unions shows me that it's an extremely sore spot and probably one we should be poking a little more. Yeah. Oh, we should be poking this thing until it bleeds out. I, this, yes. the, you're talking about something three times as much to build again, talking about multiplicable fat, multiplicable factor factors. Uh, yep. I think I said it right the first time, multiplicable factors, uh, three times. If something costs three times here and then three times there, you have to multiply that. So yes. also, these are businesses who measure their margins on single and double digit percentages, right? So it's like if yep. something costs 8% more, it's untenable to do it that way because of the margins oh, yeah. they're operating on. 300 People think that these margins are like 200, 500%. No. Yeah, it's very... just done. You're done. I, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, it, it is, it, there's the opportunity cost. Put yep. again. I, I I get this way. I get apoplectic talking about this because I immediately start thinking about what this country would look like minus the Jones Act, especially if it had never happened. Forget if it had yep. been ended 10, 20, 30 years ago, much better yep. off. But if it had never happened and we had this vibrant, thriving maritime industry here, we would not be talking about shipping container problems right now. We would not right. be talking about problems with getting from point A to point B. We would be talking about how all these other poor schmucks, how hard it is for them to get places. I mean, it, it is immeasurable to talk about. And then that would work towards the passenger travel industry because again, just because this is related to goods and services. Uh, by the way, Jones Act, does that apply to shipping people from one side to the other or is it just 
uh, is that just goods and services? Because I, I, as I'm saying that, I'm not sure. I must be honest. I don't know. Somebody asked me if it applies to cruise ships too. I don't think so because I, I seem don't to recall so. people get on and off of cruise ships in, uh, in in Bayonne, New Jersey, and in Baltimore and Florida. But I might be wrong. I'm pretty sure it does not apply. I, I think it doesn't too. But there's still a, a carry-on effect in that. If we had a more vibrant shipbuilding industry, that would mean lower cost of ships overall because there'd be a, sure, a higher demand for or higher demand and a higher supply meeting it. There'd be more liquidity in that market. So you would have more access to boats, which inevitably yep. would work its way towards passenger ships as well. So it's, there's still that knock on effect there. There would be a trickle um, down effect in prices and cost structures. Exactly. Well, and, and I mean, it's it's adjacent. It's literally the same industry. It's just one's applied to sure. people, one's applied. So there's no way that wouldn't also work its way over to that. Um right. This was originally designed to protect a very powerful shipbuilding industry in this country. Mm-hmm. A, a little yep. bit of, of historical perspective. When the Jones Act was passed, prior to the Jones Act being passed, the U.S. was the leader in the maritime industry because, again, we have the most usable shoreline. And mm-hmm. uh, especially after the Panama Canal was built, there we owned the waters, right? Like, it wasn't just the Navy that owned the waters. The U.S. merchant marines, the U.S industry of, of, of ship and including shipbuilding. And part of that was because ships were also made out of wood back then. Um, and so going into the you know, late 1700s, 1800s, into the early 1900s, most boats were made primarily or entirely from wood. And we had an endless supply of soft lumber to be able to make these, these boats to be able to do this. So we had, for many reasons, the greatest shipbuilding industry. Now, uh, post-World uh, War One. Yep. There were suddenly some threats to that industry. You had other countries that were building up their shipbuilding industry. There were they there were com- companies in other countries that were building up their industry. There were seeing this shift away from uh, wood and towards steel, and there was some uncertainty whether we were going to be able to uh, uh, compete. And the response to that, instead of rising to the occasion and continuing to uh, compete and thrive, was to uh, rent seek and push for cronyism and protectionism. And that's yep. what happened with the Jones act. Fast forward to today. There's, I think like what, two or three American shipbuilders who between yeah. them make a new ship every couple of years. Is there <laughs> even an industry who is protecting this at this point? Like who is the powerful group or industry that's protecting this at this point? Yeah. The, I mean, there's a couple of entities, but they fall into two broad. others prices don't seem to come down the way say technology and other prices do so if you must look for silver line a lot about the economy around them yeah i and i, I that's my hope is that uh, and hopefully is that is the new hope basically a bunch of people going oh hey wow maybe maybe the government does suck that is that the new hope the in, in, in new hope 
I don't think I said that explicitly, but it's never far from my, it's, ne it's, it's never, it's never two words away. Uh, it has more to do with just uh, how quickly reopening was embraced. And I, uh, I drove from uh, Nashville to Memphis through Arkansas to Dallas. And as I got deeper South, uh, in, uh, in, in, in March or April, I guess it was, uh, I found that more and more people were just, they were just tired of the nonsense. Yeah. And uh, there were more handshakes and there were more people running around on the beach, even when it was pouring rain, which I thought was, you know, usually people run for shelter. And it was just this sort of, uh, this sort of a, a, a rebirth uh, of sorts going on. But uh, the book covers a number of topics. I don't think I explicitly say that people are more more aware of the perniciousness of the uh, dangers of uh, central planning and of uh, government power, but that's definitely the case anyway. Whether or not I say it, that's definitely what's happening. Yeah, I, I, it's obviously easier to show someone how lockdowns are hurting them, or even how a vaccine sure. mandate, which has that that corollary effect of of people not working, which leads to reductions in supply. It's easier to show that than something like the Jones Act. But if you've already got them on that that pipeline of wow, does government suck at everything they plan? You can be like, yeah, it's even worse and get them all like, you know, like that guy right. in the uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode where he's, you know, showing them the <laughs> right. things on the team. He's like, yes, you know. So I, I think that that's, I think there is that that potential or that or that hope as you put it. Or they could just go on a drive, uh, we, you know, uh, with me up 95 and every time a truck goes by, I go, that could be on a boat um, and, and start talking about the Jones Act. That's a good point. Like, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then the wish that they had had died during all of this before they had to take that trip with me. Um, so, but you're you're absolutely correct. The the watching it has been very interesting to watch, even as we're now seeing COVID. By the way, COVID waves. I don't know if you agree with me on this, but they're not going away. We're this is endemic. This is not a pandemic. Uh, the the COVID's going to be around forever. It's going to be around forever or a very long time until we start having gene therapy like CRISPR, where they can actually yep. go in and oh, make yeah. us completely immune to. And, and then that means not only is COVID going away, but the cold is going away. The flu is going away. Cancers right. are going away, which I mean, that will eventually happen. I, I do believe that's eventually going to happen. In the meantime, it's not going away. And and watching with each of these waves and increasing number of people saying, yes, I think people should be safe. Yes, I think we should be, you know, taking we should be making safe. But an increasing number of people are saying you can't mandate this away. You can't lock this away. You can't absolutely you, you can't. It's not going away, and, and and we have to come to that that reality. And I, it, you know, so it's, you, it's they could do that. They could mandate it away, but then we have to be happy having an extremely rapid and 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 pronounced lowering of our of our standard of living. Oh, well, to the point of dying. I mean, yeah, if you made everyone stay sure, in their house right, for about three right. or four weeks, yes, COVID would probably go away or at least be greatly reduced. It would also kill right. tens of millions of people in this country Absolutely. alone. Yeah. Uh, so, right. so, but yes, we would get rid of COVID. You know, we'd be able to say we did it. We saved the day and like the buildings are all burning. Um, so yes, I, right. I agree with that. So before I, I let you go, and this is, I wish this is one of those episodes. I wish we could go on three hours about this because I now want to <laughs> like, by the way, Thank would you. you like to come back maybe in the future? Because I want to have this conversation conversation about quite a few things so I, I hope you would like to come yep. back on in the future i'd love to well thank you well before i let you go uh pete thank you so much for your time and i want to give you a chance to give your final thoughts plug your books okay. talk about any upcoming stuff uh yeah. you might want to mention that book you wrote about anarchy back in 2014 i you know it's up to you uh, <laughs> uh but whatever you want to talk about uh anything that you want to say anything you feel like we didn't have a chance yeah, to talk yeah. about uh as long as you want uh pete pr soon to be doctor and i say soon to be professor but you One know hopes. we'll see peter c earl the floor is yours 
Yeah, I mean, my only closing thought is that we are we're currently in the we're currently in the throes of what's the, really the largest human engineered demonstration of chaos theory in social science history, right? And it's continuing to go on. And uh, as long as it's going on, I'll keep writing about it. Uh, I have some more things in the works. Uh, I can be followed at Twitter. My Twitter handle is L1KNB. I know that sounds weird. If you search for Pete Earl, E-A-R-L-E, L1KNB stands for Let a Thousand Nations Bloom, which is a statement of very, very uh, you know, profound uh, individuality. It's meant to be very uh, individualistic. And uh, I'm on, uh, uh, on uh, Amazon.com. I have an author page, Peter C. Earl, E-A-R-L-E. And if you want to send me a message, tell me how little I know, uh, pete.earl at AIER.org. You can find me on the AIER website. And if anyone out there, uh, in particular on Twitter, would like to, is absolutely certain that we are heading for hyperinflation, do me a favor, send me an email. Let's say if you believe hyperinflation is going to occur, occur within the next two years, send me an email and let's let's discuss the terms of making a very friendly but public bet over it. Okay. I, he, again, he's calling me out. So I, because I do no, think- No, 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 not necessarily. No, no, but I, so I, I am of the belief that we are potentially on the beginning curve of what will lead to hyperinflation if something doesn't change. And it could be sure. in a two or three year period. And I may be wrong. I, I hope that I'm, I no, desperately, no, no, no. desperately hope I'm wrong. Sure, sure. No, I, I, so my response, I mean, I don't know how much time I have, but I'll just say this quickly. I think hyperinflation, I, I've written about hyperinflation in regular uh, uh, scenarios. I wrote an article in 2013 about hyperinflation in Diablo 3, um, which occurred there for real economic reasons. But basically, hyperinflation is an interesting topic. It's very exotic. It rarely happens. I mean, you don't need a hyperinflation to destroy your life, destroy a nation, right. destroy the economy. A, a mere and very unsexy 20% per year will do the trick. Ask right. any of my Argentinian friends what 15% inflation per year looks like over time. I mean, I can't say we're not heading for a hyperinflation. I strongly believe we're not. But uh, I also know that, uh, and this was not at all targeting you, uh, uh, Spike. A few people have said to me, hyperinflation right around the corner. I've said, I doubt it for a few reasons. But hopefully, hopefully I'm wrong. No, hopefully, no, hopefully, hopefully you're right. right. No, hopefully you're right. <laughs> hopefully hopefully right. we're yes. nowhere no, near no. hyperinflation because like yes. you said, just double digit inflation is, yes, yes hopefully, hopefully I'm wrong that we're without some major change, sea change in policy two or three years away from, you know, things doubling in price every, every couple of weeks or every couple of months. I, yeah, I, I hope, month. yeah, listen double digits over month over month is it might not be hyper but it's enough to wreck everything so it maybe just takes a little bit longer so hopefully we're both wrong and joe biden is going to build back better and everything's going to be okay because i i i there are times when people are like you're wrong man libertarians are wrong i'm like i hope we're wrong we keep being right and i hate it like i want joe biden to be right i've never been as right as since i began to espouse libertarian views Exactly. And the misery that comes with it. So, yes. um, so hey, Pete, thanks so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. This was a fantastic topic. My pleasure. And, thank uh, you. I, de I definitely would want to have you on it again in the future, but thank you again for coming sure. on. Thanks very much. It was great to be here. Have a great day.
try. We are not the same. That's a clever lie. Disguised in guises like my skin with my friends. In reality, you are my kin. Though I view the world through another's iris. If you slide in my kicks, it might fit. We might just unite and come together, become hybrid. At the least, slightly like-minded. Indeed, the life I've lived brings light to kindness. All you need is a sign. Put a cease to the crimes. Put an ease to the minds like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye. And it's time with the blind lead the blind. Who am I to deny? I would cry when a loved one dies. I recognize that body outside. Put a hole in the body that was alive. Now we find the chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at night. It ain't even make it to the news at night. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. All these tears, I close my eyes. Open up to only find I'm in line. There's a point in 